back and back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And today we are talking about the decisions in Praga Kaput Regni. But before we jump into that, uh, let, let's just welcome new listeners. If you found us from our last episode, uh, which did really well, which is fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. We're glad you stuck around to check out this episode. Yeah, definitely. That's it. it's quickly becoming, I think, our most listened to episode of all time. So Jake and I are really excited about the conversation that's been developing around that new theme, way that new lens around theme and lo- a different way to sort of look at theme and critically reflect. And the conversation that's been happening in our Discord and on Board Game Geek around that is, I think, really interesting and and really productive. Some of the little ways that it's been added upon is awesome. Yeah. Uh, And the other thing I want to just take one short moment to do before jumping into our main topic is to read another review that we got on Apple Podcasts. These we're learning go so far towards helping our show get discovered by new people, growing this community, growing our audience, which is fantastic. Uh, So thank you for for leaving reviews. We're going to continue to read them out as we get them. Uh, And this review is titled Going Next Level. And it's a five star review. And it goes on to say, great board game podcast that goes to another level as they discuss what makes specific games so interesting. Great listen. Uh, And this was by uh, MJ Bensky 12, uh, who may be Miles Bensky in real life. I'm deducing uh, an artist who's done uh, uh, some board game art for for Stonemaier and other games. So Miles, thank you so much for listening to our podcast and for leaving that really kind review. Yeah, thank you, Miles. And I really appreciate that you think we're taking it to the next level. And I'm excited for all the leveling up we're going to continue to do. But Jake, should we get into our synopses of Praga? Let's do it. So as we always do on these episodes focusing on just one game, we like to start out with our ratings and a little slogan for the game at the top. So, Brendan, I'm going to leave it to you, as I want to do when I get to be the host, uh, and make you go first. Okay. Praga has a tremendously broad decision space with many available actions, sub-actions, and branching sub-actions of those actions on a given turn. It's a puzzle euro through and through, and while I came to Praga excited to see what Vladimir Suchi's immediate follow-up to the triumph that is Underwater Cities is, I was left disappointed that nothing positioned as novel added up to more than the sum of its parts as a game that with so many interlocking systems sort of ought to. Praga Kaput Regni, which I've totally mispronounced the Latin pronunciation, translates literally as Prague, the head of the kingdom in Latin, but I've entirely missed the crown. Five out of ten. Ooh, that's a low, a low rating for us. Uh, so I'll jump in next. Praga is a game by a absolutely genius designer, and you can really see Suchi's, you know, handiwork in this design. It's it's an immensely complicated game, and yet it feels very fluid and seamless to me to play. Uh, I think the game flows really well, which is a triumph for how much different things are going on. Um, I really have enjoyed learning and discovering the game. Uh, And now that I'm 11 plays in, I don't feel like there's that much more to return to. So I'm really Mm. 
stuck straddling a line here uh, because it's a game I've really enjoyed my plays of and also a game I'm not really interested in continuing to play at this point. Um, So I am going to kind of come down somewhere in the middle and give it a 6.5. I cannot wait in this episode to get out the scalpel and figure out why both of us don't want to go back to this game. Despite us both, I think, really loving the designer. Uh, and I agree, Jake, it's a really streamlined Euro game that I hope my five is not to say that I think it's a bad game. I certainly think Praga is a, a, a totally fine game and a really interesting one, for, but it's just not one I have a lot of fun playing. Yeah, and I, I think we'll get into our uh, you know issues uh, and challenges with the game as well as what we really enjoyed about it uh, in our exploration of the decision space, but we should give a little bit of background uh, as mentioned, this is a Vladimir Suchi joint, uh, famous designer for games like Last Will Pulsar, twenty eight forty nine, and of course one of our collective favorites on this podcast, Underwater Cities. Uh, it came out just this past year in in twenty twenty, uh, and it plays two to four players. The tagline is: Wealthy citizens of medieval Prague organize building projects to gain the king's favor. Well. At least there's the Prague aspect of this very base <laughs> theme. Uh, so we will uh, jump right into Brendan's amazing rules overview uh, to give you a little bit of a better idea of how to play this very complicated game. Uh, Brendan, thanks for doing this. I, you know, you've got your work cut out for you. Uh, and, 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 and before we jump into that, let's also let our pre-planners know those are uh, the people who like to pre-plan their turn in games and pre-plan their journey through this podcast with us uh, by playing games along with us that over the next two episodes uh, of games, we'll be covering first Spirit Island, then it will be another What We Talk About episode uh, like we did last week on a different topic, and then following that, it will be Race for the Galaxy. So some really epic games coming up. Praga Kaput Regni is a resource management Euro game with a novel action selection wheel mechanism. Players take on the role of wealthy citizens of Prague, vying for the king's favor as they build different areas in Prague. Each game of Praga takes place over the course of exactly 16 rounds. In each round, the player will begin their turn by selecting an action from the action wheel. Each action consists of a pairing between one of six action tiles, each containing two choices on an outer wheel and a bonus inner wheel action. Given the arrangement of the wheel, the pairing between these actions and their bonuses is dynamic and shifting. After selecting an action, which includes increasing production of gold or stone, gaining gold or stone, developing a new technology, which provides players with bonuses for future actions of a matching type, building a building in Prague, which gives an immediate effect and allows them to participate in a light area control on the board amongst buildings built by other players in different regions of Prague for a bonus, build a wall tile for a small immediate bonus with a spatial hex puzzle on their own player board, or advance down the king's road to gain immediate bonuses and work towards powerful endgame scoring conditions. Over the course of the game, the players who also manage window resources, which come in two types, silver and gold, are used to gain additional points immediately or game end points for moving up the cathedral or hunger wall, two discrete grid point tracks, or by spending gold windows to take an extra action. 
There's a lot of moving pieces in Praga, and much of the puzzle is about timing the right action alongside the right bonus at the appropriate time in the game while juggling the potential benefits and timing trade-offs of a slew of other systems like technologies, constant or single-use bonuses, seals, unique end-game scoring conditions, or advancing up the Charles University track to improve the scoring potential of your technology track at the end of the game. Praga has a breadth of decisions, so I hope this was at least a good start in helping you understand the resource management point salad Euro game that Praga is. All right, thank you, Brendan, for that rules overview. Uh, you know, you did your best. <sighs> I was chuckling before because this is a game, Jake, that takes like... 40 minutes to learn 30 minutes if everyone's hustling and knows knows euro games pretty well and has a lot of experience so the idea that i could sum it up in two minutes is like kind of mind-boggling but like you said hopefully that just gives everyone at least a sense for what praga as a game is like and we'll do our best to continue to contextualize sort of different systems and mechanisms as best we can um but there's no way we can get into everything because there are a lot of little exceptions and, and little interesting um offshoots of different mechanisms even in the game definitely so let's jump right into our decision space uh evaluation of a game we'll put it through the ringer and let's start out by talking about the size of the decision space itself so i know you mentioned in your slogan uh that you feel like there is really a breadth of decisions you want to kind of take the first stab at characterizing this Sure, absolutely. I think that one of the strengths of Praga and what it's trying to do as a design is give the players a ton of choices. Um, on any given turn, that sort of novel action selection wheel basically enables players, if they have resources, right, if, they, if they're willing to spend a gold or two, gold or two, they have access to almost any action in the game. Uh, maybe not the special version of some of those using the special inner wheel bonus mechanism that is there. But for the most part, if they have the resources, you could pay to do anything in the game. Uh, so you have a lot of choices on a given turn. And then once you uh, select a given location, uh, you also have a choice of two different actions. So if you really cared about a specific bonus, you still, uh, on the inner wheel, you need, you need that specific bonus. You're still given a choice associated with that bonus. Uh, and then once you pick a bonus, you are given generally a choice of a few different things that you can do, whether it's you're upgrading, you're, you're improving your actions, you're going to have a choice of three tiles, maybe four if the special is there. The same goes for walls, building walls, or building buildings within the city of Prague itself. If you're building walls, you're going to have a bunch more choices of where that wall goes. If you're building buildings, you're going to have a bunch of more choices of where that building should go in Prague. Oh, do you want it to be in the, the upper part of Prague where you can pay even more points, uh, even more gold and get some more points for it? Or do you want it to be in the lower portion of Prague where you just select any number of these 10 different spots that it could go into? And there's uh, obviously a bunch of information that feeds into all of this. Um if you do you want to manage your mines or quarries? Okay, great. Well, do you want to get one of the associated gold or stone and increase your production in future turns? Or do you just want resources equal to your production? Oh, great. You did the, the manage portion. That's going to bump you up and it gives you this other thing. So there's lots of this sort of, I think the breadth of decisions and trying to filter through available information is quite large. And if, if there's a game at the heart of Fraga, that's the game, is trying to figure out what your optimal path is. Player interaction is quite light. 
Um, there is a certain degree of like, I'm going to take this action and make it slightly more expensive for someone else maybe, but it's really not hugely consequential. And I just think there's so many choices, Jake, that the noise begins to become uh, the, the impact of any given decision feels fairly low. And that's why I think there's a breadth of decisions or choices rather than necessarily a depth of them that you might have in some other designs with relatively light systems, but deep organic emergent gameplay that comes out of those systems. At its best, I think Praga does have this uh, really fun dynamic where you you know, you have these six main actions in the game that you described, and each of those has their own tree of decisions that you can then uh, pursue. Uh, so I think at its best, it has this really fun element uh, where you can think through all those different paths and, and try and come up with like this optimal play that can be a sequence of, you know, four or five steps on a single turn uh, when you add in, you know, kind of the sub actions that go with these various things. Like, okay, I've produced stone and that allowed me to up my research track, which allowed me to get this bonus action, which is going to allow me to do, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think that's really fun. However, I actually think the feel of the decision space for me when I'm playing this game is kind of small Mm. because of the way, you know, as you mentioned, there's so much noise in the game uh, where you have all these different options that you could do and they all seem pretty good. So I think the way my brain processed this game very often would be to like look at all of that overwhelming amount of choice and information and then just choose, you know, as a shortcut, one of the actions at the you know farthest end of this action wheel, which we'll probably have to <laughs> talk about in more depth. Uh, but essentially that like prioritizes specific actions, right? By making them either free or even giving you bonus points. And I just found like, if you want to have that shortcut, you might as well just like focus on doing the best with like out of one or two possible options every turn. Um, And maybe that's not optimal, but in my plays of the game, it really seemed effective. Like I've, I've played this game 11 times now at all player counts. And I think I've won nine games doing that. Yeah, so, I think that, that speaks for itself. Yeah, so that kind of just like, reinf- you know, the results reinforce that idea that, wait, maybe the mass amount of apparent decisions is actually just a mass amount of choice. And the actual decisions you have on your turn is a lot smaller than it first appears. That's definitely how it feels to me as well, Jake. And I think that's part of the frustration with the game is if I'm happy to interact with noise, if it's going to lead to a more interesting decision space, that can be really exciting. But when it feels like noise for noise's sake, that becomes sort of extraneous and frustrating. What do you feel the type of decision space is in Praga, the 16 round game? I think that it feels very static, actually. Um, which is interesting because, you know, traditionally when we think about these static decision-based games, uh, a lot of times they're like, you know, smaller, more abstract, or even mm-hmm. simple games. Uh, and I think this is like on the exact side, other end of the spectrum, right? Because it, there's so much noise and complication happening uh, every single turn you know, even though in some ways, like, yes, you're ramping up your production, so you'll be able to do more, 
you'll be able to potentially combo more things uh, at later point in the game as you kind of advance on all these different tracks all over the place. Uh, because I found myself always looking at, you know, only the actions available that are furthest along on this. What do you, what do we want to call it? Like an action rondo or or even just an action wheel. Yeah. Yeah. Whichever, because I'm only focusing on like the one or two actions furthest along the action wheel. Uh, You know, each turn was presented to me very similarly that made it feel static even if in reality it's maybe you know very slightly waxing over the course of the game it's interesting so i even with the what you're saying of just focusing on those two locations even if we take a step back and like factor in inputs like i know early game you do care about increasing your production more like upgrading some of your actions more than you might later in the game so those decisions are on your mind uh, I think because the cost even of things that you weren't looking at, because in your heuristic ladder, it just wasn't important. Generally, they're so affordable that you do still have access to them that I agree, it does feel pretty static. And you do build over the course of the game somewhat, but it's really minor. You really only ever build your actions a little bit. Um, and the effects of when you improve your actions is pretty minimal. Any other time you're like building a wall or building... A, a building it's sort of this one-time thing and in a lot of games that are sort of these hero puzzles you end up also having some sort of engine that you build on the side and like yes you're increasing production but i think it just makes it so you have to do the production uh actions less often like you're managing your minds uh just less frequently and you're trying to time what the right amount is in the game because there's no like outlet except for maybe the seals at the end game scoring that give you a bunch of points that sort of enable more and more growth in terms of the feedback loop. It's just not there. It's about maximizing your potential points over a few of these actions and figuring out when the right time in the game is. Even something like the Hunger Wall or the Cathedral, these they're, they're really tracks, right? They're like two-dimensional tracks. They're just grids presented that way so that you have a little bit of texture again of like, is it the right time to move up or should I be moving to the right? But they're really just scoring tracks. Um, you don't, it never feels like my actions are building upon another all that much. It's there a little bit, but not a ton. So I think surprisingly, the game does feel pretty static, if not to your point, a little bit waxing as well. Yeah. And, and I guess we should say waxing means the decision space grows over the course of the game. If, if you yeah. haven't gone back and listened to the episode, a new way uh, to talk about decision space or something that was? yeah i think it's just a new way to talk about games which <laughs> a new way maybe to talk was about a little bit too broad but yeah there are different <laughs> types of decision spaces yeah yeah if you enjoyed our most recent episode you'll probably find a lot to enjoy about that one uh, but as i said you know it felt like a waxing decision space uh and then you start talking i also realized that actually at the later point in the game because of the decisions you've made uh, and and kind of the mm-hmm. end of game scoring uh, you've activated for yourself. Sure. You actually might have less option, like it's sort know, of less in that decision sense. because, okay, well, I'm going to get all these bonus points by having a lot of gold at the end of the game. So on my last turn, I just have to, you know, produce gold. Uh, yeah. So I think ex- maybe uh, to put a finer point on that at the beginning, it feels very, very, small decision space because you can really prioritize certain things in the game at the end it feels very small because 
you have to prioritize your scoring opportunity. And only in the middle turns of the game is really when you have the opportunity to do any kind of strategy shaping at all to to whatever small extent that exists in the game. So maybe kind of it does have a little bit of a curve in that sense. Yeah, though certainly not as dramatic as something that we would normally call a dynamic game and not oscillating as much as we might. Um, I think that to sort of explain where you were coming from to one thing that a point we should make is that an interesting aspect of Praga is you it is the type of euro game where you're just going to get paid out for some of your resources at the end of the game like you'll get paid out for your eggs and and other things but you also sort of sort of opt into your game and scoring uh scoring options uh at least the ones that have the greatest potential for giving a lot of points by getting to the end of certain tracks or up certain tracks or pushing uh your token on the hunger wall or cathedral further along. So investing resources into certain scoring options, you kind of lock yourself out of the decision space and carve out an end game scoring for yourself. There's also these seals on the table, which represent pretty powerful end game scoring that you can block from one another. So there's one that will give you two points for every gold that you have at game end or three points for every gold and, and ore or stone. Uh, things like that, or some of them are just flat points here. You got to the party late. You can have four points, um, which th- that system's interesting. You, it sort of gives the decision space a little bit of flexibility, I think, and adds a little bit of an element of the race, which I do think you need some form of a little bit of a race element in, in Euro games like these sometimes to give you a need to want to interact and look at what each other are doing. Right. I, I, the only reason I want to push back on that a little bit is because it seems like the action wheel sure. limits your ability to like actually choose different things throughout the game rather than doing like what's just like the best to you in terms of like resource accumulation that, you know, again, while you could race up a track, it o- almost always in my experience seems like not worth it if you're taking a less optimal move by like paying gold to take an action in sure. order to like secure the end game scoring you want um as opposed to just taking the best actions and like eventually you'll have the opportunity to claim an end game scoring and by that point you might just have so much more resource and ability to to you know apply that in different ways throughout the game that it doesn't really matter what your end game scoring is i do think that this, so there's also a mechanism these different ages where new tiles that are more powerful of the uh the wall tiles and the city tiles and the action improvement tiles come out uh, and i think those can serve to incentivize maybe paying sometimes if something really powerful comes out that given the position that you're in is going to reward you greatly if you opt into that tile that can make paying for things worthwhile so when those shift over when a new sort of age as it is starts that can be a little bit exciting and then also one novel aspect of the action wheel which i do like though i don't think lives up to some of the other sort of novel action mechanisms of Vladimir Suchi's other games is when the action will gives you those pairings that happen that are special between the bonuses and the city tile types in a way that it feels like the perfect thing that you need at the moment. Uh, and you get to take it and you get the bonus that you need and the action that you need. And it lets you do uh, these sort of extra things just by having barely enough to thanks to the bonus. For me, those were some of the most exciting moments in Praga. But a mechanism like that doesn't 
for live up to the height of something like the worker placement card system of underwater cities that to me feels simpler and more exciting. I also, this might be a good point in the podcast, Jake, to just say that on decision space, we generally focus on the decision space of games purely. We, we keep that at the forefront. Um, Praga is a game with beautiful production. There, there's these incredible 3D player boards and the wheels are literal wheels that move. So those are aspects of this game that I think has really endeared a large subset of its player base too. And that's a really important aspect of playing games, just not one that on decision space we generally delve in too, too much. Well, let's take that opportunity to apply our new framework about theme. Sure. How would you categorize the theme in this game in terms of environmental mechanical and decision theme i think this is pretty (laughs) easy yeah no it's i think that that's a great question and it's pretty apropos of where the podcast itself and sort of our journey and applying our lenses is going so i appreciate you asking it i think it's a game that wants to be higher in the environmental scale um though doesn't for me quite get there i think it we in our examples in our posts and on our podcast last time we sort of created this false binary to create more interesting conversations but i think this would actually be like sort of a medium environmental i think the mechanical theming of these different elements is quite low actually like the walls don't do anything particularly wall like the buildings get a pass (laughs) i guess i know i don't know i'm not building a building i'm just selecting a bonus and putting it next to another bonus and like there's nothing building like about these and some of them i guess applies to the hunger wall or the cathedral it'd feel more thematic if they applied to one or the other maybe if this was like a church but it's a game that doesn't want to make mechanical compromises for its theming fine um and decisionally i definitely don't feel like a wealthy citizen of Prague (laughs) building out the city of Prague, which is like what drew me to the game is i was excited about that um because i i actually love the theme this idea of this city building game where us around the table are going to over the course of the game build out the city of Prague. but like at game end there's all these gaps in Prague with the locations of, of buildings and i don't know why like i'm building my own wall in my own player space and you're building yours i i think it's a mismatch between the the overall subject of the game and sort of whatever theme it's trying to pl- apply this like collective building it's just not there. i think yeah the mechanical theming in this game is like almost a case study of like what low mechanical theming is like and it feels like perhaps the fact that you have to like collect an egg to move up the bridge track spend an egg to to like move your guy along the bridge is almost like a knowing nod that yeah like this is like nonsense but it's silly and i think in the rule book it says something like there was a myth that like eggs were used in the concrete the mortar, to like yeah. build the St. Charles, like whatever, right? You know, that that is like the fact that you have to like spend a bread to move your pawn up, down the bridge is like, that is like the low mechanical theme <laughs> poster Completely. child. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, I think yeah. I think it fits squarely into like kind of the low, low, low category of these kind of like Euro games of old, the castles yeah. of Burgundies of the world. Um, and I just think like for environmental theme, the the production is beautiful. Yes. But that's kind of like separate from environmental, right? Like I love the art. It looks like a great cityscape. I guess it's got the St. Charles Bridge that places us 
in Prague, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I never once thought about Prague playing this game in my 11 sure. plays. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I don't know, to, to this point, I don't know what makes Prague all that different from from other cities. Like, this city could have been anything, except for the eggs and the mortar, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah. But it, it really, I, and I think that that's, that's not a knock against the game. It's not a lesser game for that. It's just that the, the theme and the thematic implementation isn't a selling point of this specific game, and, and that's fine. Right. Okay, unless, you know, and, and many of our favorite games are low thematic integration games. Uh, and, and so not a value statement, but perhaps something to think about uh, if you're interested in, in trying out this game. So let's move on to some of the more specific components of the game. Uh, should we talk a little bit more about the wheel and the bonus action selection? I know we got into that a little bit uh, in our conversation of the decision space itself. I feel like we've mostly covered it. I will say that in Vladimir Suji games, one more time, I do think that he tries to build his games around these novel action selection mechanics. Um, and part of why this game misses for me is this mechanism. But do you have other thoughts on it? Of I guess of how it works. I think that this mechanism is like so nearly the best thing ever. Like it's so nearly like just like a ten mm. out of ten, um, and. And it makes the first play of the game, I think, really accessible and fun um, because it does take what is a very complex and overwhelming amount of decision and it streamlines it for the players and says like, yes, you have access to all these things, but you could always just pick between these two most advanced tiles uh, and, and do good that way. And I think that is like a really nice way of kind of spanning this uh, difficult divide between players who want a really great first play experience and players who mm. want a really deep experience that they can dive into. So the first time I played Prague, Praga, I thought like, this is amazing. I'm having such a fun time right now just exploring this game, just picking amongst these two things. And in the future, it'll be fun to you know, see what I can do with better knowledge of all the actions and kind of interchange at will. But I just found that, like, as I had mentioned, it seems too powerful taking uh, the actions that the game is incentivizing you to take to the point where maybe you only want to pay for an action, you know, zero, one, or maybe two times over the course of the game. You know, in my experience, having played this, I think, 11 times, Perhaps people who've played it 50 times will say, you know, you've, you've got this wrong. But, uh, you know, I feel like I've played it quite a bit. And that's a pretty clear takeaway for me through my learning thus far. One thing we've talked about on the show a fair amount is how what we've observed from looking at Feld games. And I think Feld is one of our favorite designers on the show who does these sort of low thematic, uh, low environmental, low mechanical, low decisional theming games well and makes a case for them being really strong ways for games to exist is the interlocking nature of systems. And I think that this wheel system um, is that it's exactly that. And it's almost so interesting. And all of my quibbles with this game are not 
the wheel, which I agree are so cool, the decision space it creates and the, the multiple sub layers that it has. It's just all the things that the inputs from the outputs of the wheel plug into, right? Like I want to play a game with this wheel mechanism again. I just am not super excited about the game post wheel um, yeah, if, and what I get to do with them. If Suchi chooses to use this mechanism in another game, I will be very excited to try that game. I think it is a really cool innovation kind of divorce from the implementation in this game and i think even potentially an expansion to this game mm. could uh really elevate it uh to something else so i do i don't want to like just because i have challenges with the implementation uh i still think that this mechanism has tons of potential to create super rich decision spaces and i think it's like a really really genius innovation from the designer we haven't really talked about this, and I think that it would be awesome if we could glean at this moment why we are so into this mechanism, despite it not working, as like this idea of a, a decision engine within a Euro game, right? This this like mechanism or set of systems that interlocks to create dynamic and interesting decisions that make every play feel differently. That's almost what Praga does, despite the implementation not quite being there. And that is what Feld Games does. Yeah, and I was going to say, Castles of Burgundy is like a great example of the decision engine where every turn you're presented by like your own awesome, fun puzzle to engage with. Totally. And like Bruges, when the dice get rolled, that's another really f fascinating little decision engine as you have to reference and see how that impacts everything that you could do. And it creates this really dynamic space. And I think that Praga, uh, Praga's decision engine is let down by its destination, not the engine itself. Right. Yeah. Well said. Let's continue That's... on to some of these other mechanisms in the game uh, and, and the bearing they have on the decision space, if that's all right with you. That sounds awesome. Okay. Uh, right. So so we'll, we'll talk through the different actions and let's just touch on them really briefly. There's six main actions in the game. Uh, the first is production, where you can manage your mines and quarries. This is how you can increase your production of gold or stone. Or you can produce gold and stone at the level you're currently at. Um, and any any kind of takeaways about this? Pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. I do think one cool aspect is that the increasing your production always gives you one of the type of resource that you're increasing. And once you get to a certain point on the track, you can augment that further. So I think it is interesting how the, pro the proportion of benefit that you're getting from increasing um, is relative to the point in the game that you're at. And also it basically makes it such that you're trying to figure out when the right time to actually produce and get this glut of resources is. And I think that for me was also one of the more interesting decisions in the game of, I did feel some degree of tension of, I know I should just be increasing my production because in the course of the game, it's going to be so beneficial to do that. Getting to the top of one of these tracks, I'm going to get seals. There's good bonuses on the tracks, whether it's getting an egg, those juicy, juicy eggs um, or other things. And then obviously just producing gives you that influx of resources that can be really powerful in terms of getting a specific wall or city that you want. So I felt tension here. Um, and to me, that's the coolest aspect of the system. There's also, there's so much Jake in this game, like so many little <laughs> pieces that are there, I think that do make the decisions more interesting too. So in terms of uh, the bonuses you get for reaching th certain thresholds of resources on hand, are sort of interesting that incentivize in the other direction, right? So if I get to six gold, 
oh, great, I get a book and that book's going to increase my technology track. And once I get to a certain part of my technology track, I get this thing. And um, it does have that interaction of of elements. It just feels forced and not organic. And I think that's right. partially what we're pushing back on too. Yeah, there are trade-offs here. And I think anytime you have interesting trade-offs, that's the shortcut to let you know there are interesting decisions to be had. And I think that's mm. the thing I like most about it is that when you get to a certain threshold of stone or gold, um, that it rewards you for that. But you're also incentivized to, instead of producing, to just make sure you're increasing your production to get to the end because that's how you unlock end of game scoring. Uh, so I think that's great. However, it also just feels like in practice, it's not that hard to make these decisions. Like you can have like a really simple heuristic of I'm just always going to increase my production unless it's going to allow me to reach one of these barriers. Um, and that just seemed to work like really flawlessly with, with the game, right? You know, it, the game is just providing these incentives. And if you're just following those signposts, right throughout this game, it's like, you're going to do really well. And the, accumulation of all of those signposts and following them and all the heuristics it gives you just again leaves it feeling like wait maybe there aren't so many decisions here it's mm-hmm. more just kind of like reading and following the cues great let's talk about the king's road okay what did the you eggs. the eggs get your eggs out pull out the cartons what do you so the king's road is really another end game scoring outlet but i would say jake uh, and tell me if i'm wrong it's vital you get to the end of the king's road by the end of the game I think, I think you have to either get to the end of the King's Road or get to the very top of the... I, can't, I don't remember if it's the Cathedral or the Hunger Track, but those both give you access to the same mm. end-of-game scoring tiles. And I think you have to do one. At, you have to do one, if not the other. And it just seemed in my plays that the path of least resistance to that was usually going down the road. Uh, and plus, going down the road gives you bonuses along the way that are uh, often really nice yeah Yeah. this is also a source of real variety in the game this is one of the ways in which the game tries to mix up how the game can play so there's different modular elements where you can the road is basically broken up into four different segments and then there's a bridge at the end because we're building the king charles bridge of course uh where you actually get your end game scoring and you can replace those sort of those first or is it three stops actually jake i think it might be three stops along the road and those can give different immediate bonuses or ongoing effects that you'll get for upgrading different things or things like that. And I actually, I like the eggs feel more impactful as in terms of as a resource than the other two. There's a good, um, it it doesn't feel like everything's worth exactly the same in terms of resources. Uh, the game obviously signposts this too, as they make you trade gold for eggs. Um, but I, I liked this enough. I wasn't particularly judged by it. It didn't it didn't excite me, but moving down the road always feels good. And um, the excitement of getting to build the road and and getting the bonuses for putting one of the road slats down as it is, and then seeing what your endgame bonuses were good. I I was frustrated some at some points with this game that the planning of my endgame scoring, that there wasn't more room for it. It made it so much more tactical than strategic almost. Yeah, it's I think my thoughts on the road like it's fun to go down it feels good getting these powerful bonuses but it's like can you do it without resistance then you should do it yeah if it's like really difficult because it's going to cost you a lot to get a egg and then then maybe don't wait until you'll have the opportunity later to to get an egg 
through a more organic way, which is definitely going to come up sooner or later in the game. It's so interesting because this is actually a great example of like another version of what you were saying with the wheel mechanism, because if the go down the bridge action ever aligns with the you get an egg bonus, it's just like, yeah, no, there's not much of a decision. I'm doing that. It's great. Um, all I more so than Jake will just pay a gold to do that too sometimes. So I'll pay two gold for my egg and then move down the road. Um, just because I feel like those pairings really incentivize it, but it doesn't feel like a, a deep decision always between those trade-offs. And I, maybe part of that too is just like, you can always do other stuff later and everything feels kind of equivalent. I don't know. Yeah. What? And I, I have some thoughts on like kind of the modular nature of that, but let's, let's save that and transition into upgrades. Uh, which happens in various ways throughout the game and I guess also inserts some amount of variability to your play. Uh, So one of the actions is you can grab a tile to upgrade any of those six actions throughout the game and they can range from just giving you like an uh, extra point, victory point, every time you take that action to, you know, giving you some, some resource output. Uh, the ones you get early in the game in, in age one are like very small bonuses in general. And the ones you get in age two can be very powerful effects, giving you, you know, more uh, difficult to uh, achieve resources or help advance you up uh, different tracks. Uh, so that's kind of a way in which the game puts forward this idea that like you can have a different play experience, right? Because mm-hmm. theoretically, if I take the first turn of the game to upgrade the road action, then that's you know that's gonna play out in the decision I'm making throughout the game, right? Okay, well this time I'm going big on the road, you know, or same with any of the actions. But <laughs> because they're so the bonuses are like so small, uh, it never fe- I never felt like in any of my plays like wow this is like a, a unique build. Hmm. Yeah. It all just felt like incremental effects. Some of the age two stuff, I there it does give you a little bit more. Like in a game we're playing right now, I just got a bonus on my uh upgrade actions tile where I can get an egg. No, I can get a gold window by paying a gold, I believe it is. That feels a little special, but I'll only use it once or twice probably, um, over the course of the game. Yeah. Um and, and similarly there's a technology track where you can collect these books in various ways throughout the game, and that's going to upload or upgrade uh, different techs. The first two give you small incremental bonuses again by doing something in the game, which are like always nice to have, but never seem to like like at best they could be like tiebreaker. And when you're thinking about the actual decisions you're making, they're just the bonuses aren't big enough for you to like go out of your way to like use that action a lot oftentimes too they're just different sides of the same coin like okay this game i got the one that gives me stone for this action or this time i got the one that gives me gold for this action or this time i got the one that makes it incentivizes me to go up the hunger wall or this time i got the one that incentivizes me to go up the cathedral i never have a true sense of a shifted identity right yeah and then and it's the exact same with the scoring tiles right by the time you get to the point in the game where you can unlock a scoring tile by like one of the end, end game scoring which can be the windows we've talked about um or sorry the seals that you get from getting the your production all the way up or 
getting to the end of the road or getting all the way up the hunger track like by the time you're doing that in the game you're you get to randomly look at three and you just always pick the one that's best for you at that time right it doesn't really give you any ability to strategize and because you're only looking at you know three of the possible six or eight you can't really you know prioritize like going for one ahead of time either because it just might not come up and i found in most of my plays by the time i'm looking at that it's like okay this one's gonna give me nine points or this one's gonna give me seven points and this one's gonna give me eight points with the possibility that i could get 10 off of it so you know it's just such a small little choice that doesn't really feel like whoa like i'm being rewarded for like a diversity in my build so i think all these things together just creates this game that is just like for how big it is and how much like variable aspects there are in the game none of them change your play in a significant way so it just feels Mm -hmm. like this is a little bit of turbulence it's just like not very replayable after you've really got your head around it uh you know in, in after you know really three or four plays you're just doing the same thing because your heuristic tree just makes it feel rote is essentially yeah and i think a lot of the stuff that you just said jake like the seals or the uh the bridge tiles at the end those modular uh or like unique scoring outlets partially what i heard you saying also is like the benefits of these isn't great enough which that's a concession of wanting all of the actions to feel roughly the same so that it can be this really broad decision space but then it makes it not feel like it matters so that's where some of the frustration is too if they're all roughly equal what do you think of the the hunger wall in the cathedral these sort of grid track mechanisms because there weren't enough tracks in the technology and the key charles Brid and the production and we just throw these grids up here too yeah that's an interesting question from the decision space lens, right? It yep. it doesn't really impact my the decision space that much, right? It does add an extra thing to like, you know, layer into your heuristic decision-making process that you're, you know, you're using to to frame all the decisions in the game, uh where a lot of times uh you can kind of I don't know the term for you can collect these bonuses that will score you points based on however far to the right or left you get on one of these tracks. So when you're placing a tile in the game, if you have the opportunity to get two of those instead of one, it's like that's the kind of decision that it adds into the game. And for most people, right, two is always going to be better than one. So it's do- it's not really increasing the decision space in any way, but it is increasing the complexity. So I think like that might be one element of the game I'm just like not sure is needed. They're juxtaposed, which I think is important too, because it's very difficult to get all the way to the right and all the way on the left in the way that those uh, bonus tokens, those, like J- Jake said, the further you go on the right on either of these give you more points or maybe it's the left. I can't remember, whatever to the end of the track in the X axis of the grid axis, um, you're going to get more points. You kind of have to choose between them to some extent, but you can still then go up both of them. Um, To me, one of the interesting mechanisms is the bonuses that you get for landing on certain squares that push you one to the left or push you one higher uh, that can give you a little bit of extra value. And the timing aspects that it puts in the game of, is this the right time to spend two silver windows to move up, spend some of those extra resources as sort of that bonus action in my turn? Um, 
But then I found the more I played, it was just sort of like, I'm going to sit on two windows until I go over the window limit. And then I'm going to, if I got a gold window, I'll take another action because that's very powerful. Or if I got, if I end up with three silver windows, I'll just do it then. And then I'll have more information anyway, and just try to decide which way is better to go. And those horizontal uh, bonus spots try to fight this somewhat and say like, oh, look, you've moved sideways. So maybe you do want to spend them now and go up, but oftentimes to, to get another little added incremental effect. And, but a lot of times, like Jake is saying, the, the decisions didn't feel quite as interesting in terms of that. I, I don't know. Yeah. I guess we should say one of the interesting, you know, is again, it's like something that seems really interesting on the surface is that to go. So I guess walls, I should say the wall tiles you can get and add to your personal player board, uh, allow you to move, to on the cathedral track but they give you the tokens that benefit moving on the hunger track Mm -hmm. and then the buildings in the game give you the type of tokens that you are rewarded for by moving right from the wall bonuses yep so it's sort of put you know it cancels out right you're getting the tokens but moving on the other track from one versus the other so in it seems like an interesting trade-off, but in practice, it's just like another thing in this game that rewards you for just like taking whatever action happens to be the most efficient at that time over specializing in any way. Um, and and so I, I wonder if, you know, maybe the game would be different and feel a little more unique if instead of doing that decision, uh, the walls synergized with each other. Right. And then yeah. maybe you'd, you'd get more of like a unique build. Like, wow, like that game, I really focused on doing walls and I surrounded my whole area with walls or something like that, as opposed to what in reality, at least to me, seems to be most on the best play, which is like I built a couple walls and I built a couple buildings <laughs> to maximize yeah. the value. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that's really well put. And I guess to that point, maybe we talk about cities. Let's do it. So cities were an element of this game, or buildings, excuse me, because there's only one city. It's Praga. Uh, it's Prague. They're buildings. Uh, this was an element of the game I was most excited about. The, it is p- positioned in the game as like, you're going to do this fun area control um, sort of interaction for these bonus spots with other players uh, while getting some other bonus tiles that apply to the hunger wall and cathedral along the way. Um, in practice, I found that because the space is so large, even at higher player counts, it didn't really ever feel like the area control and, and being the one who has the most cubes on a given location matters as much, especially because there's like points for first and points for second, a bonus for first and a bonus for second, and they're not hugely different. Um, and then on top of that, not even all the building tiles play into this so sure you can like block spots but you're also pushing players closer to just finishing them and getting the bonuses before game end in a way that this also started to feel a lot like i'm going to take this action and then i'll just select what's the best available right at this moment in a way that didn't shift my decision space really in terms of future decisions and impact what i wanted to do on future turns in a way that pushed me in the direction of something else on the the action wheel meaningfully. I I could get to it if I got to it. And if it mattered, it would be great. And if not, I'll do something else that matters. And I I don't know. It didn't, I expected there to be a lot of life and vibrancy in this aspect of the game, the system. And instead it felt kind of flat. Right. 
it feels like the map needs to be different at two players. I just think mm-hmm. it doesn't really make a lot of sense that the same map you're using at two players is the one you use at four players. Because at four players, like the mechanic is 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 literally you are you get bonuses paid off when uh, a a tile on the map is completely surrounded. So that just happens so less so much less often um, in two player because you can just it's so easy to avoid accidentally helping an opponent. <laughs> this is Jake jumping in from the editor's booth to clear up something I got wrong. It is true that you play on the same map in a two-player, three-player, four-player game, but in the two-player game, there are several plazas removed from the board, so there will be less to complete. Uh, Theoretically, increasing competition for the ones that are there, though I will say in my experience playing the game, it is still more rare that plazas are completed in the two-player game versus when you have the full complement of players. Okay, back to my rant. But I found even in four-player game, like, this action seemed to be often the worst. Like, the buildings are just, like, really expensive a lot of times. Mm. Anytime you're doing a building, unless you're completing it and getting the bonus for yourself, um, it's adding value to somebody else in in some way, which is, like, not the case with any of the other actions in the game. Uh, Because even if you're not fully surrounding it for somebody or allowing them to surround it, uh, it still makes the next person who places on that plaza is going to get one more bonus point than you got. Uh, So that just seems like a weird misbalance, just kind of like a miscalibration. I think that, uh, you know, I'm getting away from the decision space and do putting on my reviewer hat a little more, but like, I wonder if like these could cost less to incentivize Mm. this action being a little bit stronger in the game. Um, Yeah. Yeah, well put. I think we both kind of, yeah, gave our own mini turbulence on on that one. Um, while we're doing turbulence, yeah, okay, run the bit real quick. Uh. Uh, this is your captain speaking. We are now approaching a little bit of turbulence. Please return to your seats and buckle your safety belts. Okay, the last thing I want to say on turbulence uh, is I think that I found that there's just like not a lot of balance in the tiles that come up uh, and, and they can be super swingy. You mentioned that you got the uh, 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 upgrade tile that gives golden windows and that tile is like so absurdly powerful in the game uh, compared to other upgrade tiles uh, that it's like, I think I would be tempted at this point to like not have it in my game if I own this game and like house rule it out because it's just so strong. Mm-hmm. There's another, uh, I think it's a upgrade tile that gives uh, books when you build walls to help you get up the book track. And that one also seems just like significantly stronger than others. And the same is true in, in buildings like uh, where, it just seems like some of them are just so much, so much stronger than others that could be cost the exact same. And there is a mechanism that allows you to kind of dig a little bit to remove some from the display to add two others. But I, I don't know. It's just something that like stuck out to me um, because in Suchi's Underwater Cities design, it's like another game with like all kinds of like crazy player powers, but everything feels like so tightly balanced mm. uh, that like it, it makes me want to like assume that I'm just like off and not 
calculating this right. But, you know, my experience with the game is my experience with the game. And, and it just seems like a little bit wonky in, in some cases. I think, yeah, I to go back to Underwater City, since you invoked it, and I've already invoked it twice in this episode. I think one of my frustrations, too, is that in playing Underwater Cities, I do feel like at the end of every game, my identity, uh, how unique my experience was, really did shift. And I feel like my Underwater City and network of cities is quite different than yours. And my experience of that decision engine was a unique experience in a way that here, everything just every game feels like I, I I feel a little bit like I'm stuck in like a a Kafka-esque like pushing <laughs> pushing action selection buttons like over and over like nightmare land of Euro and I I don't know I know there's people out there who this game is going to work for them and they won't feel that way about the decision engine um and that's awesome it is not the game for me I don't, once we finish our games, I will say bon voyage to, to this one forever, I think, hopefully. <laughs> That's pretty harsh. I would continue to play it, I think, uh, on, now that I know how to play it, I do think it plays smoothly. And maybe that's like the difference between our overall impressions. You give it a five, I gave it a six and a half, which is like, I still think it's like fine and pleasant and fun and it flows nice. Like I enjoy taking my actions. I'm just not finding like a lot. There. You also want to grind it for ELO points for Yukata. That's, That's true. Aspect. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Nine went out of 11 wins and tried to up- <laughs> upgrade yourself. Of course you will a little bit. But yeah, I that think is true. true. I mean, yeah. I think you point out a good bias. Like maybe if I wasn't like winning, I'd, be having less fun i think also that's just a difference between us as gamers too right like that's me enjoying keyflower more than you because of the the zaniness of it and how different it is and you disliking it you and liking this a little bit more because it's streamlined i think just that is our preference for even these sort of like resource management games absolutely i i would be interested I hope people who love this game tell me why I'm wrong. Because mm. even as we come to the end of this discussion, and I think we have been more critical than we've been extolling this game, to be sure, I still feel like part of me is like, okay, this is where I'm at after 11 plays. But after 15 plays, you know, like I just feel like I need somebody to come and just like whip me at this game. Sure. And that you could like completely change my perspective on like, okay, wait a second. Like, it's not as easy as, like, I want to get golden windows, you know, greater sign books, greater sign eggs, greater sign white windows, greater sign, you know, in producing, increasing production, like, greater sign basic resource. Because that's literally how I'm playing this game right now uh, in almost all cases. Totally. You could just write a little application and then you could take your turns and you got it that way. Uh, I will... <laughs> I think if I'm allowed closing thoughts very quickly, Jake, I will say I think that for me, one thing that makes Praga a harder sell of like this question of like, should someone try Praga? Um, I would say if you're a big Euro fan, try it. It might be exactly your jam. It might be what you were looking for. I will say we, I came into this episode. I talked about this a few weeks ago, being really excited to come back to a Euro game. I'd been missing playing Euro games as we jumped into some other things and it didn't quite do it. And I think partially that's because I think the 
the rules complexity, it's like a mid to heavyweight hero. It's not any crazy type of heavy, but the rules baggage is quite high. So the amount of investment in reading the rules book was pretty high to the depth of the game. And I found that maybe I, for how much it asked of me, I wish it gave back a little bit more. Yeah, I do. I do agree. I think it's a hard recommend because of the rules grit and also, uh, you know, seeing the reactions of people who've been pre-planning this game with us in our discord, bouncing off of it pretty hard in general. That said, you know, if, if a 30 minute rules video isn't does not strike you as like crazy like oh yeah that's what i like doing on my lunch break anyway yeah i think most people i really believe most people are gonna have a pretty fun first play of this so i think that's kind of the the two sides of the coin if a 30 minute rules tutorial scares you away you can feel very safe staying away from this one um but if not you know and if you've enjoyed other designs i'm really glad to have played this game uh and i really did enjoy my first three or four plays especially and if you are like, but I haven't played Underwater Cities, maybe listen to the Underwater Cities episode of Decision Space and then try that one on Yukata first or try the one that sounds more interesting to you. Yeah. Underwater Cities, easy recommend, you know, and, and all this aside, like I'm still incredibly impressed with Vladimir Suchi as a designer and want to seek out uh, his other games that I haven't played. Uh, the Pulsar is one I really want to try and have it, and I'll be really interested in future output from the designer as well. Uh, I, I don't feel like scared off at all. No, I, I think that's a cool I, a cool design that I'm sure he'll take little pieces from, uh, and I'm ex- always going to be excited to see what Vladimir Suchi's next game is as well. And maybe for us too, Jake, we should keep in the back of our mind that idea of decision engines for a What We Talk About episode, because I feel like if that's the product of this episode, that would be even greater if we can build upon that idea, maybe. So something for maybe the listeners to tuck in the back of their minds as well. So like, what are decision engines and when do they work well and why? Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Decision Space. As always, if you like what you heard, didn't like what you heard, (laughs) hop in our Discord. We always include a link in the description, and there's great conversation about games, uh, episodes, video games, books, whatever you want, like lively discussion going on there all the time. It's a great community of people, uh, that, and I hope that you want to become a part of it. you can always follow us on Twitter. Uh, we have a Twitter for this show. It's Decision Spa. That's Decision S-P-A. Yeah, you can follow Brendan at Burnside B-H and myself at Jake Freed. That's J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. Uh, any, any other plugs I'm missing, Brendan? I think that's pretty much it except for uh i think you mentioned but i'm not sure the link to the discord is in our show notes and then beyond that we always have to thank hembry for their hit single reach out for our intro and outro song and they got another song out a new single called oh gosh it's like suppliers or something (laughs) this is such a smooth close operators (laughs) operators check out their new single operators as well if you like what you've heard from them uh from this podcast all right until next time see ya bye all